0: Welcome to a very special edition of the Chelsea Fancast. It's Stamford Chidge here, of course, and uh, occasionally, as you all know, uh, we like to talk to uh, people who have written superb books, usually Chelsea books, usually in uh, cahoots with my great friend, lovely conspirator, Mr. Marco Worrell, who, of course, has published most of them. And they're nearly always about Chelsea. This is not necessarily the case today but there's a bloody good reason for it. it. I mean, I talked to Marco at the stall about that, about this. It is one of the most incredible books that either of us have come across. So, I mean, it's a complete and utter privilege to do this book today. Uh, the book is uh, The Ride to Hell, and it features the amazing Paul Ride. And they're both here today, Marco Worrell and Paul. Marco, good,
1: good to evening. see you. And you, mate.
0: Yeah, it seems kind of like weird seeing you when we're not doing a fan cast, like talking nonsense about Graham Potter or ever. Graham Potter's Blue White Army. Today, we're going to be more literate and cerebral, aren't we?
1: Indeed. What are, what else are international breaks for?
0: Too right, mate. <laughs> uh, well, to not talk about football. But hey, I think we will talk a little bit about football today. I have a suspicion that we might. Now, um, as we all know, you know you're, you're, you're a lovely, lovely mate and all the rest of it. Chelsea through and through. But of course, you... You you provide an an amazing service to the community, the Chelsea community, by both writing and publishing some superb uh, Chelsea books or books on Chelsea that might not otherwise uh, see the light of day. This is a little bit different today. Would you would you like? I think I think the honor of in uh, of introducing our guest really should befall to you. So I'm going to leave that to you. Who have we got on the show today?
1: So our special guest today is Mr. Paul Ride, Chelsea season ticket holder. Bon viveur, liker of a glass of beer. Good man. Um, and a man with a story about his life, unlike any other that um, anybody who knows this story has ever come across, which deserved to be in print. Um, so the backstory story is that I think it was probably six or seven years ago now, Paul and I were having a chat. At the cfc uk stall and he told me about um a book he'd written which was kind of a, a diary journal um that, that was very very long and he sent it to me and i think it was something like three hundred thousand words long um which, which to put that in chelsea books context um for those who are familiar with Kelvin Barker's book Celery, representing Chelsea in the 1980s, which was responsible for a lot of forests de- deforestation <laughs> in South America. There's so much paper on it. What Paul sent me would would have uh, dwarfed <laughs> Celery. So um, I went through it and I thought we could do something with this, um, but but it would it would be a major undertaking on the part of both of us. And in the end, it kind of got parked up, Um, up until um, probably this time last year, I think it was around about this time last year, we were in a drinker after the Peter Bonetti Memorial service at the bridge. Um, So I had a chat with Paul and I said, look, I'm I'm gonna be taking uh, some time out from work this summer to do a couple of book projects. And I've got in my mind, to, to to work on your your book but you're going to need to do some work and get get it edited down from what it was to something that that can be you know ma- manageable in terms of a book um which Paul did and i i kind of just spent the summer um just editing it getting to understand it getting Paul to elaborate on certain areas um so that it kind of had a beginning and a middle and an end um and you know did did justice to paul's um quite extraordinary story um but also you know kind of there's a big mental health angle with the book um there's also a chelsea angle to the book so it's kind of like putting all those bits together that would make it you know a jolly good read to to people who don't you know aren't friends of Paul or or myself or who would buy this this book. So it's trying to reach out to a a wider audience. Um you know and I think we got there. So the feedback from people who've read the book has been um really positive and you know I, I think everybody recognises uh, you know the 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 ordeal that Paul went through. Um you know, obviously we, we, we can talk about that now. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that was kind of the, the, the backstory to how the book got published. Um, and it's available to buy now, right to hell, prisoner of a dubious peace, um, worldwide via Amazon. And there's an ebook, uh, edition as well for people who prefer to consume their books in digital format.
0: Lovely. Hurry up. I think you have to always add to the yeah. end of that. Um, Paul, I mean, it, well, it's it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. That goes without saying. It was uh, it was delightful to meet you at the stall um, a month or so ago as well. We had a lovely chat then. And, and uh, since then, I've been really looking forward to finishing the book and uh, and having you on the show to talk about it. Um, before we get into, you know, giving us a bit of a precy of what it's about, I'd like to tease the listener, really. But uh, I was intrigued uh, reading the book that you grew up uh, in a place, you know, literally four doors away from, uh, you know, where I lived in London for a very little while, but actually, is hugely important to me because, you know, when I lived in Lots Road, it got me into Chelsea in a way that hitherto I'd I'd never really found. I mean, I didn't grow up in a Chelsea family, didn't grow up in living in London so you know I, I was never a very good supporter at all more of a vicarious armchair supporter really but uh, i lived in lots road for a couple of years and and if i didn't go to a game you know i could sit sit on the Kazi or have a bath and listen to the crowd going chelsea 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 which seems silly but for me it was massive actually so um i was massively intrigued with the fact your family actually grew up in lots road so uh, tell me a little bit about that
2: well um my family, one side of my family, come from Sands End, just over the creek. Uh, the other side of the family, come my grand side of the family, were all born in Lots Road. My dad, my brother, my nan, were all born in Lots Road. I was the first born. I was born in St. Stephen's, which is now known as the Chelsea and Westminster. And basically, we we just grew up in the area. Me, me and my brother. My brother's Phil. Uh, he now lives up in uh, Worcester, up, up near Worcester. We've with, with my dad. Uh, and, um, you know, oh, Chelsea, since since uh, it, it all started. I mean, I can remember the 67 final when, you know, we hadn't been to Wembley for years and all the streets around the area got all the flag, all the, the curbs got painted blue and white. And the, the whole area was just blue and white. There was a bus that left from Maggie Mons, which was the the greasy spoon in Lots Road. And they all went up the Wembley on an open top bus, and we watched it on the telly in Lots Road, and that was the '67 final. And uh, you know, it's it's been that way ever since. You know, uh, I must be honest and say I I, I had a feeling that Tottenham were going to beat us in the '67 final, but my brother was staunch, but unfortunately, I was correct, and and we've just been uh, at at Chelsea. I mean, we were there right through the, the late seventies, early eighties, and then we sort of moved away. And and the the closeness that that we shared about the club. Now my brother, he went to New Zealand. He's now back in this country, but he got used, very used, to watching Chelsea on the TV, and so he's quite happy with that. I'm the one with the season ticket, and um, my, myself and my father uh, lament quite a lot this season about uh, our performances or or our our, our disappointing substitutions, let's say.
0: Well, absolutely, Paul. I mean, it's it's good to to remind people that, you know, Chelsea was actually a very Chelsea area. Of course, Alan Hudson lived around the corner from when when you would have been there, I'm sure. Uh, It almost seems a bit, you know, trivial to talk about Chelsea in the context of what we're going to talk about today because, you know, your book is in many ways a horrific story. But of course, you know, as Marco alluded to, and I, I know having read it, that there are strands of Chelsea running through as an undercurrent almost actually. quite. It, 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 it's kind of, I don't know how to describe it really, it kind of pops up like a little bloke popping its head around the door going, yeah, I'm, I'm still here occasionally. And it, it made me chuckle with a few mentions that you, you go from some horrific stuff and then suddenly Chelsea comes in. Can you set the scene for us a little bit? Just explain, um, you know, the, the well, you know, just explain kind of what happened. I mean, you were you were working abroad, weren't you? You were working in Kuwait as a chef uh, and you were off to go and see a mate who worked, I think, near the Iraqi border. And then it all went horribly Pete Tong, didn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was in catering management by that time. I, I was off the tools. Um and I was working on a contract where the firefighters were putting out the oil well fires that the Iraqis had, had started after the first Gulf war in, in 91, 92. So when that ended, they put them out incredibly quickly. I was put onto another contract in a, in a town called Jara, which is about 70 clicks, kilom, kilometer kilometers, uh, North, north uh yeah northwest of kuwait city and i was driving backwards and forwards four and five times a day it was it was starting to really get on my nerves i never got stopped at any of the checkpoints they just waved me through i was seen up and down the road so often so uh, on this particular day i went to get some bread we used about 20 loaves of 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 european style bread and uh, there was a, a fault with the machine and it wasn't available so thought to myself i've either got to drive back to to where i was living in a place called uh uh, latifa towers or i I, I thought i can spend five hours which was the time the time i had to to waste going up and seeing a, a mate of mine called mike walsh that i'd worked with in in algeria so i went up to to see him and i was stopped about three times on the road going up uh, and the the scene from uh, the Hurt Locker, where he comes up to the brow of, of, of a sand dune and looks down upon this this scene of uh, destruction, I drove through the middle of that. It was it was quite terrifying. And, you know, there were just missiles and bunches boxes of grenades and rocket launchers. It was just like a, a, a war a scene from a, a war film. And I was I, I approached three or four checkpoints, and they the last one said to me don't turn left or right. Well, the road went up and then it just disappeared and, and it turned into like hard hardcore, like, like sand and, and rubble. And I thought, well, I'm not driving across that because there's an awful lot of things that haven't gone bang in Kuwait at the moment. So I'm not gonna drive off, off, off of the blacktop. So the blacktop turned to the left, I turned with it, and then about a half, half a click on, half a kilometer on, uh, there were two two signs, and one said to a town in northern northern Kuwait, and one said to the U, Uni, United Nations Unicom, United Nations United Nations Iraq Kuwait Observation Mission. It said the, the it was that way. So I followed the the signs that it, it sent me. It t- it turned me to my left, and I passed between, uh, well, what I can only describe as the detritus of of hundreds of of boats it was a boatyard and i could see in the distance i could see derrick so i knew i was very close to the gulf uh which i hadn't been for quite a, what you know since i'd left home that morning uh so i'd come sort of up and, and gone around and then um i drove onto this roundabout and one sign said the hq that way and another one said to the camp and i thought well i don't want to be seen wandering around the camp so i'll go to the hq so I followed the sign to the HQ and there was a strange there was like an Iraqi sorry the, there was a an Arabic style arch and on the top of the arch was this flag and I thought that's strange that that looks right, but I noticed there's something wrong with it. And I had on the dashboard of the vehicle there was a linear jack on a stick and it was punched shoved into the to the dashboard and as I climbed out of the vehicle to go and ask these soldiers all these soldiers all swung their arms towards me and and started posturing. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. And then it suddenly hit me. The flag was the Iraqi flag. And I thought, right, well, I'm in Kuwait. I work in Kuwait. That's the border with Iraq. So I've just got to, if you like, front this out. So I went up to this this sergeant who who looked like one of the the sergeants, one of the, off of an old... uh, American comedy, uh, you know, uh, uh, there was Stalag Luft 17, and, and there was this big, uh, he he wasn't he was he wasn't well-dressed, he looked very untidy, very scruffy, and he said, you know, I explained to him in Pigeon Arabic that I was going to see a friend who was working for the Iraq-Kuwait observation mission, and he said, I want one. No, my yes, no problem, get in the vehicle. Get in the Sierra, so I got into the the car, <laughs> and as I jumped out, I pulled the, the the Union Jack out of the out of the dashboard because I thought I don't want to antagonise these blokes. He gets in beside me and he goes, "Rua, go!" and he points towards Iraq, and I, I said, "No, no, 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 no. Have a mishgila. That's that's a problem. That's that's Iraq. I work in Kuwait, so he." well and this must have happened four or five times go no go no and then he pulled his gun out and so i just gunned it i I just hit the accelerator drove across the border and it turned into one of those situations where i thought i've just got to i've just got to try and ingratiate myself with these guys because i'm now under their control Uh, and and so i was taken into a room and and then it, it was as he took me into the room i then realized what the problem was Because the vehicle I was driving was registered in Saudi and they believed that I had driven from Saudi Arabia through Kuwait and then I would got to the Iraqi border.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to put this in context for people, this this is in uh, kind of was in 1992. So the the first Gulf War had uh, not long uh, finished where, of course, America uh, and the British, uh, you know, came to the aid of Kuwait because... Iraq had invaded Kuwait but of course the Saudis had been very instrumental in that because they provided a lot of uh I mean Riyadh was a massive air base for us wasn't it during the war so the appearance of a Brit in Iraq was not was well I, <laughs> I hesitate to use this metaphor but I'm going to use it anyway like a pork chop in a synagogue it was not going to go down very very well um what strikes me, I mean, this is really the start of the book, isn't it? And 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 from there, you basically, this is your ride to hell. This is the eighteen months of hell because, and what what struck me most about the book, Paul, was was almost, I mean, you mention it a lot, actually. You you call it naivety, but in a way, I would call it innocence, you know. Um, and I think for me, the 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 crux of the book rests on 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 a, on a fascinating premise. I mean, you could call it British exceptionalism, but I would actually call it British naivety. When we go abroad as Brits, we don't think anything bad can happen to us, and we're we're kind of we have this kind of strange furrow on our brow when people say, "Well, no, actually, you're in real trouble." Well, of course, I'm not. I'm British. You know, I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you a, a, a stupid example that pales into in, insignificance compared to your story. But I remember being in Canada, and. Um, we were driving back across the border to the States. Now, as you know, America's actually quite a nasty place to get in and out of, actually. The border guards, they're horrible. And we're faced with, like, you know, the motorway, and it's got, like, eight lanes at the border control. And I see a lane on the right, where, which has less, less cars in it, and being impatient, I thought, well, I'm going, going, going to go down that one. Of course, I wasn't allowed down that one. And I was about to be in serious trouble, and the border guards looking at me with massive malicious intent, I've got the wife in the car and i just look i'm I sorry Mark, i'm british <laughs> and he just he kind of just looked at me rolled his eyes and go on and i think we have that attitude and it seemed to me that throughout throughout the book you know you, you kind of go through so many hurdles and it's like this can't be happening to me this is all going to work out this is all going to be fine you know this is nuts i'm innocent i've not done anything wrong And, uh, you know, I'll get out of this mess. And, of course, the absolute opposite happens every time. And I think that's the thing that astonishes me about the book. Real wake-up call for anybody, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is it. You know, you you go abroad, you work abroad. And I'd, by this time, I'd been been doing it seven or eight years. And I got quite used to, I wouldn't say being... Uh, the, the, odd, the odd man out, but but certainly being a, a Brit abroad, you know, uh, I, I was used to, um, you know, coming home after three months, I was used to working away, and um, I, I built up a lifestyle around that. Um, but what, what happened to me, it's almost like every time I thought, right, this is gonna be over now, we went in the other direction. Every time I thought there's a, an end in sight here, and this is this is going to come to an end fairly soon. Like, for example, I, I, I talk about it in the book. Uh, I was held in, in a number of locations in uh, Basra while they were deciding what to do with me. And they took me to the Igama office, which, which is a, a, an office about getting passes to travel back to Kuwait. And when I'm at the Igama office, rather than taking me back to Kuwait, they send me back to a police station. At the police station, I, I hear people being tortured. I hear people being, uh, I hear women being assaulted. I mean, I, 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 you know, I use the word assaulted. I think that they, 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 these women were being raped. Uh, it was unbelievable. But then... The next day, they took me back to where i had been, and I thought, "Oh, right, this is great, I'm back here now. And I saw the guy who who took me to the office, and I thought, right, this is all going to finish now, Uh, and and I'll be going back to Saffron and Kuwait. The next thing is, three guys come up to me and say, how would you like to go to uh, Baghdad? And I said, no, thank you very much. I'll I'll, I'll go to Saffron, and I'll go back over the border in the other direction, please. And he said, no, 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 our orders are to take you to, to Baghdad. And you know, uh, I, I I said innocently, I said, "How far's that?" And he went eight hundred kilometers. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm 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 sort of 80, 80 kilometers in in trouble now. I'm going to be a whole lot more when I'm eight hundred and eighty kilometers into the country. And and it was you know when they drove me, they 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 drove me on a quiet back road, and I I had, I had visions of it, have ended up in the desert very quiet you know um the whole the whole thing was was something I I I couldn't understand and as as I say at one point in the book these you know I, I call them a rather uh nasty name but I say they basically think they've got James Bond in a t-shirt because as you see I wear t-shirts
0: well that that, that was the thing isn't it because they, they were laboring under the illusion that you were you were a spy that you were spying for the British or the Saudis, when actually the reality, of course, is that you, you you're working as a catering manager and you got lost. But they wouldn't they wouldn't yeah. accept it, would they? And I think this is another another thing that that we perhaps as British are under a misapprehension that the people will understand this and that justice and truth will prevail. When actually in a lot of countries that's far from it. And actually yeah. the other thing that came across, the, the the deeper one gets into the book, you suddenly realise that actually. You're not a criminal. You're a political prisoner, really, aren't you?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they started asking. Once they put me through the, the, you know, people say, oh, did when you went to court, did you have a lawyer? I, I, I never spoke to anyone ab- about my situation. They thrust me into this court. There was one guy over here on my right who was very, very quiet there was one guy over here on my left i was in a in a box facing these these three uh, judges and the guy on the on, on the left is 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 assassinating my character i imagine in in arabic i don't understand what's being said they asked me if if I was uh guilty of illegal entry I said no I was brought over the border at gunpoint and then they say no but did you come over the border? and I said yeah, I had to say yes and, and he starts screaming at me this this head judge and he starts saying you know he said to me oh uh and how long do you think we can give you and I'd been told that the the sentence for illegal entry was five years and one month so I said five years and one month. And he goes, no, no, no. This we this is a uh, this is a military tribunal. We can sentence you to life. But because we're nice, because this is Iraq and we're very reasonable, we'll give you seven years. And the rest is just a dream. I, I'm walking down this corridor and it's like, you know, these strange dream like situations where the room seems to go on for about a thousand miles. That's all this I was walking down the corridor with this guy who'd taken me to Colt. And he's going, oh, we're very sorry, we didn't expect this, and 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 I I can't hear anything but this like like rushing sound and him occasionally twittering on, and, and each and every time that I think right now at least I'm I'm, I'm I'm sentenced now I can get to the jail because everyone's telling me how marvelous Abu Ghraib it's got with all these facilities, by the time I get to Abu Ghraib I suddenly realise it's a hellhole, it's you, you can't even describe conditions. I mean, I, I, I had food. They they poured water through a set of bars to give us water to drink when I was in the reception at Abu Ghraib, before I got transferred to the foreign section, because Abu Ghraib, it had a foreign section, it had a female section, it had a political section, it had the, the Iraqi section, and all these were Individual prisons within another compound. It was a huge, huge compound, and uh, I, I got driven around it. At sometimes, when I was lucky, most of the time I had to march between our, our section, the foreigner section, and the the Iraqi main section. Um, it, it was very unpleasant, and it's 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 something that we were just talking, Mark and myself it's 30 years ago this year and sometimes it does seem like 30 years ago and then all of a sudden something will happen and it's very much in your face and it's it's things like when I was watching that film The Hurt Locker that that blew my mind that scene where he hits the top of the sand dune and he looks down on, on the detritus of war you know that really upset me uh, and, and it's but it's very difficult to explain it's very difficult to say, oh yeah, I've, I've got PTSD, and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, it's it's almost like, over the years, I've got better at dealing with it, but unfortunately, there are some things that that still uh, set me off. Yeah, I, I, I really don't cope well with stress anymore.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think having, and I mean, you know, I, I honestly go out and read this book it is it is. It is horrific. It is really horrific. I mean, do you know what? I'm talking of films, actually, Paul and Mark. Uh, and you mention it in the book, funnily enough. I was thinking about it, and then lo and behold, it appears on the page. But it it, it reminded me of of, of uh, Midnight Express, in a way. You know, to, to, I mean, it's bad enough being incarcerated. And you, you write a, an immensely eloquent passage on, on, on really the most insidious thing about prison. In, I mean, you know... We have the ability to it. And you you mentioned this. We have the ability as human beings to adapt and survive on the most under the most appalling conditions which you faced. Um, but actually, the biggest issue is having your freedom taken away. So that's bad enough in any prison. But to do it in an environment like that, where you're hated because you're British because of the war, um and you you don't speak the language you don't know what's going on the fear that that uh, provokes it's quite read this book it will blow your mind it's horrific marco isn't it
1: yeah no <clears throat> what i was going to say um i think the the as as Paul's sort of ride to hell as he goes on this journey um as you turn the pages of the book you kind of you you're presented with Paul describing a situation with some options, and you're thinking, "No, that doesn't really sound like a good idea, Paul." Um, and 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 he's it's just a catalogue of um, progressive misfortune, with which you know there's like there's a dark there's a dark humour to that in itself, which is British, which we've already spoken about. But the but the very but the horror um is very present you know the interrogations the the fear that that brings um the loneliness the boredom being isolated from family uh all, all of those things that you know the kind of pieces of, of the jigsaw of of the of you know the, the 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 portrait of the story that 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 we 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 see here um know and 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 then it kind of gets to a point where you know and and paul can talk about it where where there is communication with with blighty and you know the, the chelsea connection comes into play and and the whole the whole thing about this is it was 30 years ago but that was in a that was a period with no social media um basically we, we we got news presented as to us in newspapers on the wireless or on TV, and it's basically what people want you to see, hear or read. Um, so, you know, I think if Paul had been in this situation today, you know, there'd the, have been, uh, well, there'd have been one of those petitions like there was to sack Potter, which had oh. 50,000 <laughs> signatures after a day. The, the, the You know, the pressure on the government, would have been immense today, but it, it was, and I'm sure Paul can go into this now. But it was very, very different, um, in, 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 you know, with the circumstances that he was uh, having to well, deal with. Very effectively, he was a human shield.
0: You, you, Marco. Do you know what? I, I, reading it, you know, this week, I, I was thinking exactly the same because one of the things that struck me, and again, this is the whole kind of British exceptionalism stroke naivety that we have you're sitting there reading the book going, why the fuck is nobody saying anything why why aren't the government getting involved why, why you know why, why are the press get what's happening There's, he's just like there on his own and nobody gives a shit what's going on and i did think that i thought this would not happen now you know because of social media there would be campaigns there would be it would just really kick off and and, and i think it would be it would be hard to ignore and leave in the bottom drawer of some faceless civil servant's desk in Whitehall, you know, it just wouldn't happen. Um, it's quite staggering. I mean, one of the one I, I've, this is uh, just a a, a a short sentence really. I, I picked out from the book, Paul, but it seems to sum it up really what you faced while you were there: um, a litany of mental torture, deprivation, and high farce, and and. Mm. It's the farce was the, the was the intrigue because you do read the book you're thinking that's mad how can that happen and it you know I'd, I'd love you to comment on but there's just one other thing that, that that really also resonated with me and 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 I think you know you, you I think it goes through the book you were very lucky you weren't really physically. Assaulted, and i, I think most people in that situation would be very fearful of that, knowing how brutal the Iraqi regime was and how bullying it was, and you do You do describe other people who who got the shit kicked out of them, frankly. But actually it's the mental torture I think that is more that is more insidious, and And the one thing that really struck me was was when um, they they took everything off you, uh you know, all your possessions, but your wedding rings as well. Uh, and, and things like that. And so you were absolutely naked. And I just thought, ha, you know, uh, you, what, you can't think of a, of a more effective way than taking somebody's identity away when you take everything away from them and they're left with nothing. And I just thought that was awful. But as Marco suggests, actually, it, do, it does get a little bit better and you start getting connection with the outside world. And uh, who knew that Paddy Feeney would be in some way a mental salvation?
2: Yeah. Um, it, 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 Paddy Feeney became a, a sort of, a, if you like, he was an, a go-between. Uh, there was one situation that happened when Julie had come to visit me. Julie, Julie's my my wife. Uh, and she went back and no one, but no one could tell me for about three or four weeks if she got back to London okay or what she and the rumor was, oh, she also came in on the incorrect visa. She, she, she can be uh, put away in prison for seven years, the same as you. Blah blah. And, and I'm, this is like turning me over and, and and inside out. And and then basically, I, I got Paddy Feeney, or I asked if she could tell Paddy. Paddy Feeney could tell me because she came three or four times to see me when she got back and paddy feeney was the person who said yes and you we, know we I...
0: should say who paddy feeney is really for those for oh, those of yeah. us who are not the same age as we are
2: <laughs> yeah paddy feeney was the presenter of sports world on on saturday and he very very kindly and regularly mentioned me during his broadcast but he especially said oh I've got a message for Paul Riot from Julie. So I would know that she's back in, in the UK safe because no one could tell me. I mean, no one, including the British Foreign Office. Oh, and then I found out, oh yeah, th- there was some person from the Foreign Office who'd been speaking to her the day after she got back to the UK. But no one thought it, it you know, it, it it was like a need to know basis. Oh, and the bloke who's being held hostage, he doesn't need to know. It It was that sort of... Uh, stuff that that was really difficult to, to to live with because we we live in an information world. Pe- people find out things that go on on the other side of the world instantly—messages and television and, and news—and there I was, sat thousands of miles away from everyone I knew and everyone that I cared about and hopefully cared about me. But I couldn't find out any information, and it was this lack of information and and and. The iraqis rather than tell you nothing they would tell you anything oh yeah yeah uh is madam you know that he would say to me the the, the guy from the muhabara the muhabara are the iraqi secret police and i was interrogated by them on on about four occasions um he he would say to me ah where is where is madame julie because they called julie madame julie that was all they ever referred to her as i said I said, I'm in prison. I said, I'm sat here in Abu Ghraib. How the hell do I know where my wife is? Ah, we hear she is in Baghdad. I said, great. Would you like to see her? He says. I said, yeah, if she's in Baghdad, yes, please. I'd like to see her. Oh, we'll see if we can arrange this. And it was this sort of cat and mouse teasing all the time, sort of trying to... It was almost like, as I've described it to, to, to friends that I speak, spoken to about this, I say, I was very lucky, I was never tortured. And and then I say, but why would I be? I basically was a nice cream cake that they put in the window to say, we've got your cream cake. Do you want your cream cake back? And there's no point in smashing up the cream cake because then no one's going to want to buy it. You know, so I was held and, and and sort of put in the window for them to buy it. First of all, they wanted the sanctions lifted. Then they wanted £6 million worth of drugs, you know, medical drugs, not... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something else. Yeah, to get yeah,
1: trouble or Med- but...
2: <laughs> medical supplies rather than you know hash and coke. Uh, mind you, a bit mm-hmm. of crack might have made a bit of a different, you know, bit of a positive to some of them that I was ill with. But it, it was this, it was this sort of teasing and and all the time. Well, we know this, you don't know this, and and but we're going to tell you a part of it, and you know. I I started making. I I got bread and yeast brought into brought into me. Julie sent it into me, and I started making bread rolls. And they went, oh, and I, that, this is about a year after they'd been holding me, and they went, oh, now we believe you're a chef. And I'm thinking, well, I was never much of a chef, you know. But you know, what what did they think I was? You know, it, it was it was bizarre because everything they said to me. I mean, the, the British government employed a guy called Khaled Jurgis. Now, Khaled Jurgis was absolutely one of the worst things that happened to me because he was meant to be my lawyer being paid for by the British government, although they didn't pay for him, as far as I know, and he was then coming after me. So I got, I got money transferred into me so I could pay him in Iraqi dinars, which was cheaper. We could get him on the black market. But it, it was this situation where the officials in Whitehall actually employed this guy, who was in in my in my mind he was in cahoots. He was hand in glove with the Mukhabarat, and every, you know he called me into the office, or they called me into the office. Uh, Abu athir he was the Mukhabarat guy, and colored judges. They called me into the office, and colored judges says, "Do you remember when you?" Because I worked um, when the Gulf War first started. I was working as as a case, as a chef at the Ministry of Defence. And I was at the Ministry of Defence the first night the Gulf War started. And Khalid judges says to me in the middle of Abu Ghraib prison, he says, do you remember when you went into the Ministry of Defence and that door you went through? And I'm thinking, what's the matter with you, crazy sod? You know, why are you talking about this? Why are you putting me in this invidious position? Because... You're 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 insinuating that I know something more than I do. I literally, I would go into the MOD, I would go down to the kitchen, and I would come out of the kitchen and go out of the MOD. I saw nothing. In actual fact, people would come to me in while I was working in the MOD and say, "What's happening?" Because I had more news on the radio than they had on on the official lines back in and out. Because it, you know the whole thing was so secret. And it's it's things like that, you know it's, it's basically when you think, yeah uh i'm I'm gonna be all right now, I can cope with this there was there was this awful mechanism that, that seemed that sort of whenever everything was going well, there'd be something that college judges or someone else would do which 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 would blow the whole thing wide open again, and you think, I'm never going to get out of here if these fools don't stop playing like this. Yeah.
0: It's it, it 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 seems to me to be very much part of the the the, the process and the and the kind of the gaslighting and ratcheting it, ratcheting it up. Um, eventually, you know, you do get access to. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a lovely passage where I, th- I think this is before you're in Abu Grab, but you managed to catch uh, Chelsea uh, losing three two to Norwich, <laughs> which which is enough to piss oh. most people off, but. But you do get a radio in the end, and and Paddy Feeney, uh, as you said, he was the sports presenter on Sports World for the BBC World Service. Kind of keeps you. I mean, and again, and I, I mean, you know, I, I can't think of anything more awful than being that disconnected from everything. That would that would sorely test my mental health. So I'm just kind of thinking, did did that help? You know, in a way. I mean, you know, it does seem trivial to talk about Chelsea in some respects, but you know setting this in context this is the this is the the 92 93 season isn't it in the 93 94 season which was pretty dire <laughs> for Chelsea as I recall so I'm kind of half of me saying you know that connection might have really helped you kind of get through it but on the other hand I'm thinking it might have made you feel worse but what what was it Paul? G-G. J.K. J.K.
1: fans
2: real opinions i'm jason cundy and you're listening to the chelsea football fancast proper chelsea football no i mean it was really fantastic because ken bates who was the chairman of the club at the time made an announcement in the in the club uh, magazine and and in a, in a couple of programs that Ch- he he asked chelsea supporters to flood the iraqi uh, postal system with messages of support and and letters and all that and i got thousands of things i you know i was replying on little slips of paper because basically i i didn't have any paper and i was borrowing this paper so i reply on tiny little slips of paper and the, but the support was fantastic, you know, people would tell me, you know, people would tell me all sorts of things, you know, it was almost like I was part of their family, and they'd discuss, you know, what was going on at home, and they'd give me little stories and vignettes that, that were happening in their life, and it, it really sort of made me feel close to home, it certainly made me feel close closer to, to my Chelsea family at Stamford Bridge, but... But by the same token, as much as I got, I'm sure there was an an equal, if not more, a greater amount I never got because things turned up to me and and envelopes were ripped open, half the letters were missing, half, you know, inserts, oh, did you like that thing we sent you? I, I had to say, I'm sorry, I never received anything if it wasn't brought in officially by the russians who represented the british government because there was no british embassy in baghdad at the time so a guy called gleb dissietnikov came twice a month on the second and the 20th and and saw us uh if if he didn't bring it into us we didn't get it and so you know some months uh some months we'd, we'd have a, a surfeit of of mail there'd be a a great big pile other months oh we haven't been to a and collected the mail from the british embassy in a in jordan so we haven't got anything for you this month so it was very much uh hit and miss i i could be flooded with like you know, two or three hundred pieces of mail in one in one session and then i might not get any for, for six weeks so i started eking out my replies and and, but it really was uh, a a very it it was it was one of those situations where without the support of those people without the support of people who knew about my club who knew things that I, I couldn't know because I was locked away you know thousands of miles away that was a breach that really kept me looking forward you know oh I will get out it actually was in Abu Ghraib. Well, I, I, it was Eurosport, I think. It was the only time I, I saw any of Chelsea. And all I saw was Dave Besant make an arch over the ball and the ball trickled underneath him. To, to We'd gone 2-0 in front and we lost it 3-2. And it was just, I thought, oh my God. You know, here I am, thousands of miles away, and the boys... Can't even get it right. The one time I see him on the TV, <laughs> I,
0: I know that, that thought occurred to me when I read it. Actually, you you wrote to Ken Bates as well, didn't you?
2: I wrote to all sorts of people. I wrote with Ken Bates. I wrote with John Major. Uh, I, I wrote to everyone who sent me any mail. And if anyone sent me mail that I didn't reply to, it's because I never got it. And that, and that is you know that is the only reason I I didn't reply to any piece of mail is because it just never turned up. But I, I wrote to Ken Bates, and I wrote a couple of times to the uh, the Chelsea, you know, the I can't think what it was called at the time, but the, the newspaper. We had a newspaper at the time. Onside, wasn't it? Yeah. It onside? onside
1: onside
2: yeah, yeah. I wrote to them a couple of times, and my letters featured a couple of times in um, in, in Onside, uh, and and that was very very good at the club, you know, because I mean. It, Uh, as as happened when I I eventually did get back, uh, I didn't make myself very popular in the dressing room because basically all I'd got was the negative side of the thing from everyone who was writing to me saying, oh, we've lost this and we've lost that and things are going from bad to worse and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I've come out of uh, of custody. I come out of custody on on the Friday afternoon and on the Saturday, you know, at three o'clock, I'm at Stamford Bridge. And, of course, my head is swimming. So I've said some very undiplomatic things in the dressing room. Oh, Steen, you're the guy that's been signed and you haven't, you haven't like scored for seven weeks. And, then, and I'm going, you'll get it right, mate. You'll be all right. Unfortunately, he did. But I don't know if he ever, you know, he, I was ever seen as as a, the catalyst of his seven goals in a row. I was seen as I, the I, guy. I
0: think you should take it,
2: Paul. <laughs> I probably <laughs> will, but I think actually I was seen as the guy who come in with with you know and made some stupid comments and I thought, well, you know, I remember when actually when taxi when Dennis got locked up and he said, oh the horror of the door closing behind me and I thought, yeah, let's have that eighteen months worth Dennis yeah. then then you know that that you're not in iraq (laughs) yeah yeah
1: Yeah.
2: but it's it's things things like that you know people go oh my life span before me when the door shut behind me and i'm thinking yeah it it did but you know it's like when i hear people on the telly now and they go oh i haven't seen my wife and and children for three weeks and you think three weeks you know and it, it it seems very unfair of me to judge other people but it it reminds me of what i lost yeah you know when people say oh, three 3 weeks 5 weeks 2 months you think you yeah, know well, well, times
0: ten. i mean you know uh, you you have i mean we'll we'll touch on this 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 later but i mean you you have a, a an absolutely justifiable and and righteous righteousness to be as as pissed off bitter twisted and angry as anybody i've ever met so i wouldn't i wouldn't hold a little bit of judgment against you marco I mean, it's interesting he- hearing Paul talking about the Chelsea element and and, and the number of supporters that, that that wrote him. I didn't know that Bates had done that actually. Um, dear old Ken, he's he, he's having a good week, isn't he? That that interview he did with the yeah. Blueprint Boys. He's coming out actually as as a far cuddlier Captain Birdseye than many of us might have thought. Did, but do do you remember around that time? You know, did, did were you were you aware of Paul's plight? You know, as as a, as a as yeah. I've done,
1: really, yeah? yeah. Yeah, no. Um, obviously, read about it in um, on the side. The, the, the Chelsea Independent, the forerunner of CFC UK, was um, on the streets, and and that had uh, featured um, a couple of articles in there. And you know, B- Bates actually encouraged everyone to write to Paul, mm-hmm. um, and I feel bad because I didn't. <laughs> yeah, but I think nor, I was. Nor did
0: I, and I'm very sorry now.
1: Taking too many drugs at that time. I, 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 I was,
0: I was, I was pretending I didn't like football because I just met my future wife, Paul. What can I say?
2: You know, these are the breaks, aren't they? <laughs> no, but it it was really good. And to be honest with you, another thing that I I, I don't know if everyone is aware of when. Ken Bates organized a collection he organized a collection at Stanford bridge and and Julie was given I believe over two and a half thousand pounds yeah. you know and that sort of generosity by, by ordinary people was what was what kept her in you know able to go on because there were all sorts of things that I didn 't realize the government I thought the government were posting my mail. Judy was posting my mail. I wrote hundreds of, of, of letters and she she paid for the post for all of them. And it was the generosity of people with collections like Chelsea organized that kept her able to keep going. Yeah.
0: Good old, good old Bates. He liked a collection, didn't he? In more ways than one. But uh, there we go. Anyway, look, um, eventually, you know, eventually you get out Um Bizarrely, uh, in some respects, uh, due to the uh, uh, the largess of uh, Sir Edward Heath, um, yeah. but anyway, you you get out you get out of prison finally, and uh, you come home, and of course, most people would have thought brilliant. Paul's back, life gets back to normal. It's all going to be great. Not necessarily the case, was it, Paul?
2: Unfortunately not. Uh what I didn't realize was I'd already slipped into a psychotic state. I, I I wasn't aware of what was going on. Um I thought, you know, lots of things that that, that should have been very good for me were actually uh very difficult. Um, the company I worked for had reduced my salary. Once I'd been captured and taken over the border, they reduced my salary to 50% of what it was. Uh, Julie wasn't able to live, live on that. And when I got back, they basically said, we're going to pay you 50% of your salary for the next three months. And then you're on your own. So I was paid until February, 2004. And then basically I had to go back to work. Uh, what i didn't realize was because so much of my existence if you like in 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 abu Ghraib and in iraq had had centered around food and and keeping myself fit and alive i'd 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 got into a bit of a a mental fugue about preparation of food and it was just something i didn't want to do anymore and unfortunately if you've been a chef i think most people know that if you're a chef you are a chef i mean I, I was, We were flown back but by the generosity of um, uh, Sir Richard Branson. He actually sent the jet out there and we came back on this jet. There was just us and, and, and a few people that Sir Edward Eve allowed to get on the plane, jo- journalists of his liking. So we fly back in. We, we stopped at Bari to refuel. We fly back in to, to Gatwick uh, and then Uh, he says to me very generously if you need some help get in touch with me so i get in touch with his personal assistant and his personal assistant says yes send me a cv i'll pass it to our catering department and i'm thinking you don't understand i don't want to do catering anymore i can't it's it's like this mental thing that's that's freaking me out and that was part of the problem because i'd only ever as as in in a working sense been a, a chef it's it was proven impossible to move away from and basically i i i went back to university and, and got the education i didn't get as a 16 year old because that was basically why i became a chef because I, I had no qualifications to do anything else and i i retrained uh got myself a degree and then went out and did uh, a, a teaching uh a pgce postgraduate certificate of education but all the all the time um you know, I'm, I'm 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 trying to do things in in the right way, and 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 Iraq is still tugging at me, and it's still tugging at me. I I I did loads and loads and loads of different uh, types of psychological counselling. There was a one was a rapid eye movement where someone waved a pencil in front of me.
0: EMDR.
1: I, I believe that's yeah. what it's. Yeah, it's, it's
0: designed um, it's designed to help people with trauma. So it would have. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's worth, um, I mean, obviously, it's up to Paul if he wants to talk about this, but when when Paul returns to to the UK, um, you know, his life does take a, a far darker turn. I mean, when you don't think it can get any worse than what he's experiencing in Iraq in isolation. Um, you know, your life pretty much unravels, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. um, and you know uh those steps where he builds his life back together um does the college degree and goes on to do the work that he does now um sort of getting <clears throat> getting the, the the gap in between there um is is tr- truly uh you know traumatic for paul well the situation was, I, I came back and I,
2: I was just angry, angry all the time, all the time. I was on the edge of an, a, a minor explosion every waking minute of, of the day. Uh, and Julie, quite rightly, you yeah, know, she sacked me. She kicked me to the curb. I cannot blame her one iota. She was dead right to do it. And Chia and William went off and left me. And I, I thought, right, well, that's, that's. The only thing that got me through Iraq it was Julie and William. And I'm thinking to myself, right, well, there's nothing left. So I'm, I'm just going to take my own life. And I, I tried to overdose. I, I took every tablet I could, I had in the house. I drank a bottle of brandy. I washed it down with half a bottle of uh, Southern Comfort. I was in a real mess. And then basically I, I woke up the next day and I thought, why, why can't I sort of stop this, this this torture, you know? And um, I then tried to create some smoke to asphyxiate myself, and I was too good. The old pyromania took over and I was too good. And the flames did start licking around the bed. And I thought, oh, I don't wanna burn. I don't want that sort of pain. I just wanna drift away nice and, nice and peaceful. Uh, and that's when the police got involved and they said, yeah, we're going to have to arrest you for your own protection. So this really nice uh, detective constable, a a guy called DC Franks, lovely bloke, he arrested me and he said, this is for your own protection. And then the Crown Prosecution Service got involved and they said, no, he's a criminal and we're going to take him to court and we're going to prosecute him for arson. And I'd actually run across, run from Palmerston Road across Forest Road, to the to the uh fire station in my skiddies in my wife fronts that was all i had on and they came to my house and upstairs in this flat are still records that were in the same room so that's that's how little damage it caused those records are still upstairs and they still play fine and it was thanks to the firemen who came across double quick and just put the fire out but it involved an insurance claim and they wouldn't deal with me because they said, you know, he's he's off his head. Uh so they they would only deal with Julie. And that was another thing that I felt isolated and I felt, you know, victimized and belittled. Mm-hmm. And 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 all this sort of um stuff that I should have been better able to handle. I just I just couldn't handle in any way, shape, or form. And and as Mark right, rightly points out. You know, I, I made some terrible decisions, and I, I made some decisions based on the fact that, you know, I, I, I was I was very ill. I was mentally ill. I, I had a breakdown, and then once they they decided, right, they said to me, right now at Colt, you can either go to Pentonville or you can go to Claybury. Now Claybury is a huge mental hospital near Wood Green. Uh, sorry, uh, Woodford Bridge. in in, on the borders of of Essex and I I said I don't mind you know roughy tufty I said I don't mind put me in Pentonville I can cope and they went no 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 we think you will be better off and we'll be easier to get in touch with at Claybury so I went to Claybury trouble is that also now gives me a psychiatric psychiatric record that means when I come out of there I eventually they take me backwards and forwards between uh claybury and bolton forest uh, magistrates court and each and every time they do it i have to run the gauntlet of the the media and in the, the last time i actually went to court i made a, a a one-fingered obscene gesture to towards the tv camera and in the evening the uh, on on london uh, news. They went. Should Paul Ryan be shown clemency? You know, as if well, making well, well, an obscene.
0: Why? Were, why were the media involved? Is it because obviously you know because of what had happened to you in Iraq? People, you know, that you were on the media's conscious, so you you then became a story, right? Is that is that why they're involved? Yeah,
2: exactly that. the The only reason they were involved is is because they can then say, "Oh, prisoner from from prisoner hostage from Iraq," you know. Loses the plot, tries to kill himself and everyone on his terrace, and the BBC. Actually, the day I went to call, uh, they took me to they took me to the Old Bailey, and um, they said, "Yes, we we can't deal with this at Wolfen Forest. We're gonna uh, we're gonna pass this up to the Central Criminal Court." And I'm, I'm thinking, Central Criminal Court. Sorry. Then it dawned on me that's the Old Bailey. They think they've got hold of some kind of major league villain here, you know. And then they take me to the Old Bailey. I am backwards and forwards with, with a barrister that cost me a lot of money. And I eventually, on the day of the, the court hearing at the Old Bailey, the uh the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, offered no evidence. But I still had to go and appear at the Old Bailey. And on the very morning of that case, the BBC show a picture of a house that's burnt out. It's gutted. There's smoke pouring out of windows. There's windows are smashed in. Not your house. Not my house. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, 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 this is another thing where I'm thinking, Christ, they're, these these people are out to get me. You know, the paranoia really kicked in. And it was only the fact that my dad was there and my MP, uh, Neil Gerard, his his personal assistant, she was there, and they they were coming with me to the court, and they both sort of calmed me down a bit. But I I, I had really lost my mind, you know, before appearing later that day at the Old Bailey, because the BBC just just put on a, a burnt out house and said this is Paul Ride's drum, and it wasn't.
0: Unbelievable, um, yeah. I mean, I I you know you know I'm a I'm a psychotherapist in my day job, so it, it just staggers me that. Uh, That you weren't looked after better actually given all of that and given what you'd gone through I mean I remember when we talked to the stall you said you'd actually, you did get a lot of help Um, I'm I'm thinking not at this stage because I mean you know Claybury was a a psychiatric hospital, you were in there because they were trying to stitch you up for attempted arson I presume but um, did you get help after this?
2: Yeah uh, um, it was arranged by uh, my MP's Personal assistant. She got me in and 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 paid for me to have a therapy, a place called Ticehurst House, um, and this was the place. Th- these were the people that had actually uh, dealt with uh, Terry Waite and John McCarthy, and I I went there and I had a t- two week sort of in in uh, house uh, thera- therapy. There were four of us and. Um, basically they made me understand that that my problem with the sort of the PTSD, it, it wasn't what I had, but it was mentally what I felt I'd lost. And, um, for me, it was, it it was the loss of being able to earn a living. It was the, you know, it was was a complete, I mean, the, the therapy there, the treatment there was absolutely brilliant and I can't thank them enough, but, um, Based on my experience, my Neil Gerrard, my my MP in Walthamstow, actually ran a thing uh, called the Hostage Recovery Bill. And he he ran that through the House of Commons. And I believe that is now on the statute books, um, based on my experience and and lack of of care and and, and, uh, treatment when I first got back. Because I basically fell apart. I, I was, uh, you know, I was in a, a very bad way, and I'd, I'd be, you know, I'd be the first to admit I, I was, I, I was unpleasant. It was difficult for me and difficult for everyone around me. And I still, I still can go off pop, but I tend to go off pop about things that that I have no control over, like Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I've I've often said, you know, in a therapeutic, Marco and I have have had long chats about this in the past. The therapeutic, nay, cathartic qualities of Chelsea, and it's almost like a, it's a it's a lesson in 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 understanding karma, in in both senses of the word, actually, because we cannot control what happens on that bloody pitch and also off it with the people who run it. And of course, the irony is, as Chelsea supporters, we think we own the club, we think we are the club, we think we control all of it. Bollocks, can we? So I think that's something that, that that kind of resonates. I mean, look, you know, Paul, I, something that occurs to me, you know, um, and, and the relationship really between fear and anger, let alone the relationship between the need to control, uh, as well as, as as a way to deal with fear. But it just occurs to me because you know, I've read the book. You, you had to keep a lid on so many things whilst you were uh, in Abu Ghraib, uh that would have you know god if we get you know mildly irritated nay violent a Chelsea result the things that were happening to you in there would have set most people off but you for your own self-preservation had to keep a lid on that and I know as a therapist that you know all emotions are the same if we try and stick them in a box they're going to leak out sooner or later so it, it comes as no surprise to me even if one you know sets aside the psychotic breakdown which again i think is completely understandable and the ptsd which is completely understandable just the just the innate anger that you would have had having been put in that situation for 18 months completely understandable and it astonishes me that people just didn't didn't realize that or help with that or try and find out what was going on
2: i th- I think it it is best summed up I was, I was, I came out of my house in Walthamstow and I was walking down the road and this, this uh, chap, you know, guy, guy of my age, you know, late twenties, early thirties, he said to me, oh, you're that guy off the telly. You're the one who, who was, who was uh, in prison, did not you? I said, yeah, that's right. He said, yeah, oh, you're all right. You're your own now. It's all finished isn't it. And I, I went, there yeah, and, and, my, and my head's thinking. I wish it was I really wish it was you know but unfortunately that's everyone thinks that the transition is you're in prison you're in pain you're out of prison the pain stops and I wish I wish that was true and I'm so sad that I lost so much I mean because my, my world fell apart um, I, I lost the house That you know we had to sell the house and split the money up and all this that and the other and, you know, basically that was that was how I came to return to Chelsea because I said to my nan, I said, Nan, can I exercise your right to buy your flat? I said, you yeah. know, and, and she said, yeah. And so she exercised her right to buy it. I paid for, for the, the purchase of the flat. And um, basically I sort of lived with her for the last six or seven years of her life. Um, and she was she was good enough to do that to, to and for me. Uh, and, and it's it's sort of given me a restart that I would never have had without without her and the opportunity to move back in here.
0: <clears throat> I, I think that's a really good point. You know, on, <clears throat> on both sides of the coin, you know, you, you can't you can't turn the clock back. You can't eradicate what happened. Um, you kind of just have to find a way to live with it, really. But, also, you know it's never too late for a restart, never, and I think i, I mean i i've you know reading the epilogue of the book there there seems to me that 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 seems to have solidified for you in a way. Is that where you are now?
2: Oh, yeah, very much so I mean, Julie and I have been back in a relationship for about ten or eleven years now. you know it's a long distance one she lives in devon i'm I'm here in Chelsea uh and And we see each other as often as we can, um but it 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 has really damaged my relationship with with my son, William, you know, because obviously he experienced a whole load of things. I mean I remember I was pushing him back. he used to go to a a, 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 a nursery in a place called Hyams Park, which is in between Wolfenstein and Chingford and i I used to push him go up and collect him and push him back in his wheelchair. A bit, sorry, in his pram. And he there was a set of an allotments. And over the, the other side of the allotments, there was a tower block. And he went, oh, look, Daddy, there's a hotel. Because obviously his experience of tower blocks was the El Rashid Hotel in Baghdad. And it made me understand just how much impact this whole affair had on him. And, you know, our relationship now is really, really Difficult, and you know, I'm sure I'm I'm mostly to blame for that. But you know, like like you say, you can't turn the clock back.
0: Why Why are you to blame? It's not your fault. You ended up in an Iraqi prison.
2: No, no, but you know, he was a little boy. He was a little boy, and what happened to him was possibly a result of my actions. You know, by getting locked up, I exposed him to all sorts of things a two, three, four year old shouldn't be exposed to.
0: Yeah, understood. I, I get that. But you, I mean, without sounding trite, you can say that about all of us as parents, you know. Oh, we'll, yeah. You know, it, that that that's why I have a job, mate. To be brutally frank, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, Paul. Um, I mean, it is. It is. I mean, look, it's an incredible story. You are an incredible human being to have gone through all that and come out the other side. Uh, as I said, I was privileged to meet you at the stall when I did and have a really, you know, decent chat and. As I said, I mean, I think you're a testament to our ability to survive pretty much anything, really. So my hat is massively off to you. And I think, I mean, I, I can understand, and I didn't really ask you the question, but I would imagine the book was quite a cathartic experience for you. But I, I think to share something like that so openly can be nothing. Because this touches on so many other areas other than, you know, the the specifics of being banged up in, a, in an Iraqi prison for eight, 18 months. I think it will resonate with anybody, actually.
2: I've I've had nothing but nice things said about it obviously the pe- the people that have read it thus far uh, uh, the circulation has been very much family and friends and colleagues at work um lots of people have said they can hear my voice coming through and and for those that don't know me and and, and read the book hopefully will we'll get an idea that I I I try to be totally honest everything that happens in there is Something that happened to me, and I'm going to make a little confession here. Is the only things that I didn't write are the actual descriptions of Chelsea football matches. Mark did that because, <laughs> because I didn't see any anything. All I saw, all I saw w- was was uh, Besson making an arch over over the third goal, and apart from that, the whole thing is is true and honest and you know some of it is painful I read some of it now and I think did that really happen like that you know did you know and I've got this as you say this attitude of the British are overseas you know I was waiting for someone to get their shit together and suddenly realized that they couldn't treat an Englishman like this you know what I mean it was it but it never happened no, <laughs> and no. then they've come out so everybody've come out and I had a Chelsea top on and and he said Take that off. I don't want to be seen as partisan. <laughs> so I had to take the top off and, and go out in a T-shirt, which is, you know, but de rigueur for me. Um, but the, but the whole thing was strange. And and it was, you know, it was little things. Like I, I can remember, I should have said nefarious. What I actually said in this interview that I did with this when I was in prison, I said nefarious. Because I didn't know how to spell it. I knew what it meant. But I didn't know how to pronounce it. So all these little things that 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 sort of happened that I think that's me looking like a right mug. That's me looking like a complete idiot there, you know. And and you set yourself up. You say things and you do things. And and I, I'm just happy. I'm I'm so grateful to Mark. Because I think the way he has edited it, because it was, as he said, three hundred thousand words, the way he's edited it, it's it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it makes sense. It, it you know, whereas a lot of the stuff I'd written, as someone said to me, a, fr- a friend said to me, Kim, as Kim said to me, it sounds like it was all written by one person now, because when I would, I, I mean, it took about twenty eight years. In in the writing, and I would write when I was angry. I'd write when I was sad. I'd write when I was depressed. I'd write when I was feeling hard done by, and all these different voices were, were you know were, were vying for control. And now, because of the editing and the, and, and the reading through it, and, and Mark's really generous time and, and work on on the book, I, I just think it's a lovely read. I'm really proud of it.
0: Well, it, it reads really, really well, mate. I mean, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Apart from everything else, it's a cracking read. But did it, has it helped you to get all of that off?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason I started it originally in, in about uh, uh, 1994, it was a cathartic exercise because mm-hmm. all this stuff was just pinging around in my head. And I thought, if I can get it out on paper, then perhaps it will stop just pinging around in my head. And a lot of it did but unfortunately there was just so much in there you know 300,000 words worth <laughs> yeah, well. it was it, it was it was quite difficult to to know when i'd said enough about something
0: yeah well put put down you a i mean you know the, the 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 cathartic you know benefits of writing i know from you know i know marco absolutely uh is a is a is a huge uh supporter of that um it puts my uh, you know, troubles into perspective. I've, when we finish this interview, I've got to write my my monthly CFC UK article, which is only going to be fifteen hundred words. So it, you know, it pales into significance. Whether it will be cathartic for me, I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to write about Potter, so it might be. You will never know. The, <laughs> yeah. ti- the title, the title of which will be
1: um Potters Blew My Army We Hate." No, talking. no,
0: no. The title. <laughs> you know, you know. I quite often like to lift a lyric. Or a title of a song. Oh, yeah. This one is No Time for Losers.
1: Oh, oh.
0: because we were
2: the champions of the world. Yeah. I mean, you, you, no one minds three substitutions. Three substitutions is great. We've got enough personnel. Mine's too many, in my yeah, yeah, opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we've got the personnel. And it's a good thing we have got the personal with the injuries we've got, but I don't understand taking three players who were performing well off and replacing them with three, which I, I consider to be indifferent players across across the middle of the park, which never held the middle of the park. It, it was a very, it, for me, it was distressing, it, 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 you know, because I thought we were 10 minutes away from three more points and thank you very much you know we're still sat in tent and we are we're still sort of slightly slightly closer to to the bottom three than i would would be genuinely comfortable with yeah.
0: i just want to wrap it up marco um you know can you sum sum the book and Paul up in your own inimitable uh, inimitable way
1: i think um paul's a unique person um i think people you know obviously i've got to know him well through um ring with him um to make sure that it's his story and he's happy with it um and i think you know it just it highlights when we as he as he rightly said you know when you think you're having a bad day if i think i'm having a bad day i think of what I, you know particularly in the summer um when i was working on this book um, because my I'd had some issues myself, but they kind of paled into insignificance. Um, so I found it quite therapeutic actually to, to, to work on this. And I think in a way, w- what is nice about the story as as Paul mentioned, um that although you know this this situation engulfed him and, and essentially ruined a large part of his life. Um, even though, you know, we're not kids anymore and it was 30 years ago, you know, providing we stay healthy, it's it's great that Paul's got something now. Um, you know, he's got structure back to his life, he's got a relationship back, and he can enjoy and he's got Chelsea back. Um that you know, there's kind of is that beginning and middle and an end, and it's just nice. It's, it's not, it's not a truly happy ending, but it, but it's a lot better than you think it's going to be. And and boy, does he deserve it after the shit that he went through, you know? Yeah. Um, and it just makes you realize as well uh, how fortunate we are when we get into, you know, situations with mental health issues, there's a lot more openness and we can talk about it like we are doing now because it just it just wasn't part of everyday life when Paul needed it most. Um, so, you know, that's part of the reason why things got as bad as they did for him. Um, so, yeah, I, if, I think what, what I would say to a reader, if you want to read a story that could be like a film, could be Midnight Express, that's got a bit of Chelsea in it, um you won't be disappointed it's a proper book about a proper fella um and i you know that's that's why i published it so yeah read it yeah. you love it
0: and where and where can and where can the good denizens of uh, this the listeners of this podcast find this book more how can they buy it
1: so it's it's got a worldwide release through amazon so wherever you are in the world you can just purchase the paperback with local postage rates um we do have a very small copy a complement of rare signed copies from-
0: save, save from- one for
1: me save one for me all right UK stall or or yeah it's in digital format as a as a kindle download also from amazon so really buy it you'll love it it's a great book to take on holiday if you're fortunate enough to be summering in somewhere
0: um, Maybe don't take it if you're going on holiday to the Middle East. Is what I yeah, would say. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've,
2: I've had a number of people, but you know, friends from the <laughs> at, at the bridge, who have sent me pictures of them reclining on sun lounges and reading it. <laughs> it. It appears to be that people can only read it when they're nearly nude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done. As a therapist, I'm intrigued by that one, Paul. I have to say. <laughs> um, talking of which, actually, because I mean. You know, Marco. Uh, well, obviously, I, I I helped set up uh, the uh, mental health uh, kind of you know well, how do, how does one put it signposting service really for Chelsea supporters over the line dot uk. Marco was heavily involved. Did a fantastic video for us. So it behoves me to to mention that within the context of what we've been talking about today. So if any anybody who's listening to this who's a Chelsea supporter or anybody really. Who's struggling a little bit with their mental health? You will uh, do worse than going to overtheline.uk because it's got some very useful advice about where one can go if one's struggling. And let's face it, most of us will be struggling at some time uh, in our life or other. So uh, I would commend that to you, um, gents. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't had this. I mean, I know it sounds weird, but I haven't had this much fun on a Saturday morning for far too long. Actually, it's been, it's been, it's been great. Always lovely to see Marco. Lovely to see Paul again. I, I, ho- I hope I catch up with you, you know, at a game, Paul. Hopefully we can have a beer or two because I know you like an ale. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know, I know that, I mean, like me, you know, when I lived in Lott's Road, I used to like the, uh, what's that bloody pub called? The Chelsea Ram. The Ram, yeah. Yeah, good booze of that. Yeah. Yeah, serves good beer. And actually, the used to be the Ferret and Firkin back in my day and they used to make their own beer.
2: That, that was the balloon when I was a kid. Balloon that in was the, the creek, ball- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um it, it was going to for the longest pub name, the balloon, up the creek, Inglots Road, da, 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 the, at the ferret and Firkin. It, I, I don't really know. Kim Kim can remember the name because she worked there. Um, but I, you know, I'm uh just really delighted that you've invited me on today to, to, to discuss the book. Um I didn't get anything in way of compensation, and I was told by the government that I've got to go and deal with the Iraqi legal system. And I'm thinking, well, how can I go and deal with the Iraqi legal system when they told me I was tried by a military tribunal? So, you know, <laughs> it's one of, one of those strange anomalies. You think that's not going to work.
0: No, it's, like, it's like that film, Brazil, isn't it? You know the one? I don't, uh, don't know. The fi- it's it's a, an 80s film with Jonathan Price, Michael Palin, but it, it, it basically uh you know pokes fun at at, at, at at bureaucratic regimes and uh
2: apart from everything
0: else you're a victim of that on both sides of the fence i think but there you go yeah there we go paul i hope to catch up with you for a beer it'd be great to continue the chat it really really will and maybe we talk a little bit more about chelsea as well but paul thank you yeah. so much you're an absolute star mate as i said it's incredible what, what you've gone through brilliant book go out and buy this book people you really won't regret it uh marco as always delightful to see you mon ami and uh no doubt we will we'll catch up
1: soon see you. Are you up next week for the villa game
0: i will be yes i'm uh
1: see you then <laughs> yeah
0: i'm kind of like well and i'll tell you what i will definitely be up and i will be making save me a copy of paul's book and i will pay you some money for it because i love having a signed book so yeah you save yeah, me one yeah yeah we'll do mate good man lovely stuff well i'll see you then gents but great to see you both uh Well done, thank you. Really enjoyed that. And
1: uh, up the chills! Up the chills! Come on, you boys.
0: It's the 90th minute